You may already have your Bibles open to Mark 7. Uh, that's where we'll be today, the end of Mark 7, beginning of verse 24, and then we will go into chapter 8. We continue in our study, the Gospel of Mark. And in doing so, we come to uh, a series, a pair of healings and the miraculous feeding of 5,000 and more. Um, Several things to note before we get into these passages, and that is Jesus has just dealt with the issue of what is clean and what is unclean, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law criticized his disciples because, yeah, they washed their hands before they ate, but they didn't pour the ceremonial water, they didn't do the ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus pushed back by saying that, in fact, they were holding to the tradition of the elders over Scripture. And I mentioned this last week. He chooses the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, to illustrate his point. And this isn't accidental. As we saw last week, it, it is the hinge. It's the bridge between the first four commandments, which deal with our relationship with God, and the last five, which deal with our relationships with our fellow human beings. After affirming who God is, I am the Lord your God, which, by the way, is part of the Ten Commandments. We cannot leave that out, though people might want to. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What then comes is that we are to honor our father and mother. I mentioned this last week, but I, I think I failed to give it uh, enough uh, context. In Romans 7, Paul talks about the fact that it is the 10th commandment, do not covet, which brought an awareness of sin to his mind, to his life. He said, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. And as I said last week, before one breaks any of the commandments, one breaks the tenth commandment, that is, do not covet. And if you look at the prayer of confession that we had today, that we are to have no other gods before, before him, yeah, but we covet, we place other things on the throne of our hearts. We're not to make for ourselves a carved image, but we covet. We want God to be the way that we imagine him to be. And it goes on and on. Having established that the Pharisees and their party are all wrong about the clean versus unclean, Jesus then goes into Gentile territory, which I think to a good Jew would seem a bit strange, that he's leaving the Holy Land the clean land, and he's going into unclean territory uh, north near Tyre and Sidon. This first incident we're going to look at, the woman whose daughter was demon-possessed, is has been said to be as much a political incident as it is a healing or an exorcism. Once again, this involves a daughter. You may remember that Jairus' daughter uh, had died and Jesus raised her from the dead. And on the way, he was interrupted by a woman who had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. And so we have three, a, a trilogy here of daughters, if you wish, as Jesus is. He raises one from the dead, he heals another, and then he casts the demon out of this third one. I will tell you as we begin this first passage that it is troubling for some. Uh, in a Bible study some years ago uh, with college students, one of those attending, and she was a professing Christian, was quite offended by this particular incident. We weren't studying it, but during the Q&A, she said, 
I don't like this. I don't like this story. Why is it that Jesus would, in essence, call this Gentile woman a dog? She said, that makes no sense to me at all. It's very offensive. Well, let's study it and see what, in fact, happens here. Look, if you would, Mark 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So Jesus has gone into Gentile territory where the Gentiles are, not the Jews, the Gentiles. And he has done so to sort of get away from the crowd. He enters the house. He doesn't want anyone to know where he is. Uh, but it couldn't be kept a secret. And so this woman, who is a Greek but born in that region, comes to him. She has a little daughter. Um, you may remember that uh, Jairus referred to his 12-year-old daughter as his little daughter. She fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to drive the demon out. And then Jesus responded, and his response uh, is unexpected and certainly troubling to many. First, let the children eat all they want. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. This is in the vein of a parable. The children are the Jewish people. Jesus came for the Jews. He's a Jew. He came to speak of the kingdom, the, uh, the, that in fact they will be let loose from exile. The bread refers to his work, his healing, his preaching, and his exorcisms. The dogs refers to the Gentiles, and this woman is in fact a Gentile. It is this last part that is particularly troubling. It is worth noting and perhaps this lessens the blow a bit, that the word that Jesus uses is a diminutive form of the word, and it refers to a household pet. It's a beloved house dog or puppy, unlike in Psalm 59, when David talks about that the dogs growl at night, growling, looking for food. Well, this is a household pet. Still not very flattering to be referred to as a dog. Can you imagine how this would play out today in a world in our country filled with racial tensions? Uh, Jesus could be seen, in fact, as being quite racist. But what is he doing? It may be troubling, but it is not the only example of Jesus testing people to prove their intentions. Another such incident involved, again, a woman and a Gentile woman, a Samaritan woman, in John chapter 4. It comes after his encounter with Nicodemus, uh, and even though well, there, there are stark differences between the two, uh, Nicodemus is learned, he's educated, he's powerful, he's orthodox, he's theologically trained. She's unschooled, she has no influence, she is despised by her townmates, she is a follower of a folk religion. He's a man, a Jew, 
a ruler, she's a woman, a Samaritan, and a moral outcast. And yet both of them were in need of Jesus. And it is interesting, I would argue, that in both cases, Jesus sort of pushes back a little. He doesn't just say, believe in me and you'll be saved. You know, Paul saying to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Um, Jesus is waiting because his disciples have gone into town into Sychar to get some food. And he asked her for water. And she's like, are you serious? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. I'm a woman, you're a man. This is, what's going on here? This is not the way things are supposed to be. And he said, listen, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. Living waters in that context refers to water that comes from a flowing stream, not from a well, but from a flowing stream. But she's thinking in terms of the well. She's there at noon. That's not when people usually went to a well, but because she was an outcast, that's why she's there at that time. And she says, listen, the well is deep. You don't have anything to get the water. And so they go back and forth. And finally, Jesus says to her, go get your husband. Uh, he knows very well that she does not have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. See, this woman didn't know who Jesus was, just as Nicodemus did not. They, in fact, were unable to understand what Jesus is saying and, and it is seen in their responses. So Nicodemus is like, what, I'm going to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? That's ridiculous. And the woman's like, what, this well is deep. And some people think it might have been 100 feet deep. This well is deep, and you're going to give me water from it? Um, she responds with sarcasm when Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you some water, and you will never thirst. In the same way that Nicodemus is like, how can this be? What we find is that Jesus... We would prefer that he would just sort of lay it all out so it would be easy to understand. And yet that is, in fact, not what he does. And that's what happens with this Syrophoenician woman, this Greek woman born in the region. He explains to her she has no right to ask for his help. She has no right to expect it. And she responds by saying, I know I don't. I'm a dog. I'll accept that designation. But you know what? The household dogs, they're always around the table when you're eating. And if food falls from the table, or if the kids sort of sneak some food down to them, that, you know, they get to eat. And view me in that light. Jesus had told her a parable which was both a challenge as well as an offer. She could have left in a huff and said, how dare you call me a dog? Are you saying I'm a dog? But in fact, she gets it. I know that I'm not a Jew. I don't belong to Israel. I don't worship the God that the Jews worship. This means I don't get to sit at the table. I'm under the table. But there is more than enough for those under the table. And I want my daughter to be rid of this demon. She won't take no for an answer. 
And the result is that Jesus said, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and there was her daughter. The demon had been cast out. Living in an age of entitlement, we somehow imagine that we should get what we ask for with no pushback, no challenge or difficulty. And this story, I think, the language aside, but the language sort of makes it even more so, it really challenges that. that somehow we imagine that God is this giant vending machine um, that we just pray and that he will give us whatever it is we want. And there are times when, in fact, God will push back. Um, always remember the line from the Bob Dylan song, you think he's just a wandering... Uh, no. You think he's going to, uh, how does it go, to satisfy your wandering desires. That somehow we think, yeah, just put in the prayer and we will get what I want. And uh, you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desire. Uh, This woman doesn't think that. She's like, I get it. I don't deserve any help at all. But I am begging and I won't take no for an answer. Then we come to the second incident, which we read before communion. This is a healing of a deaf and mute man. Or This man may have, in fact, had a speech impediment because we were told that he is able to speak plainly. Okay. Um, if you think that the previous, the casting out of the demon, was a bit unusual, this one is as well. This is different. Um, We might say, as the crowd did to Jesus, we know how you do this, okay? You touch the guy and he'll be healed. That's what you need to do. And that is not what Jesus does. Follow along, if you would, as I read verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and to the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities. Then some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him, to place his hand on the man. This man is brought by friends, we assume, by the crowd. They they bring him to Jesus and they beg Jesus to place his hand on the man. But Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 33. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. Look at what Jesus does here. First of all, he takes the man away from the crowd. As to why he does this, we can only speculate, and that can always be dangerous, but this is something between the man and Jesus. You know, the crowd has said, Jesus, we know what you need to do. And Jesus is basically like, we're going to go over here. It's just the two of them. Secondly, he put his finger in the man's ears. I've argued that Jesus always wants to engage people in conversation before he heals them or does anything for them. But you can't have a conversation as such with a deaf man, someone who is deaf. So he begins the healing by putting his fingers in the man's ears. Then he spits, and we think perhaps on his finger, and then touch the man's tongue with his finger. Um... This is something we haven't come across yet in the Gospel of Mark. We will in the next chapter. Um, but I think there are one of two ways to look at this. One is to say, well, that's 
that's kind of disgusting, um, you know, sharing your spit with somebody else. But I think on the other hand, I think it's entirely intimate. There's a real intimacy to this action, as there is with him putting his fingers in the man's ears. Then he looked up into heaven, the source of all he was able to do, and he sighed deeply. Jesus was taking this man's condition to heart. As one author put it, the sorrows of this man were his sorrows. Jesus never healed anyone half-heartedly. He always put everything he had into his work of mercy. And the quote that we had before communion deals with this. Let me read it again. When he looked up to heaven inside, it was an expression of strong feeling. And this enables us to perceive the vehemence of his love towards men, for whose miseries he feels so much compassion. Nor can it be doubted that by conveying the spittle from his own mouth to the mouth of another, and by putting his fingers into his ears, he intended to manifest and express the same feeling of kindness. Yet he has the supreme power to remove all our defects and restore us to health. It is proclaimed by him when he simply orders the tongue and ears to be open. For it is not without a good reason that Mark inserted the word ifata, be opened, to testify to the divine power of Christ. Jesus says ifata, an Aramaic word which means be opened. Side note, this is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that we've had this Aramaic, uh, an Aramaic expression uh, come into play. The first was when he healed or raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, Talitha Kume. Then last week we looked at Korban, that is, you know, you get out of helping mom and dad by saying, oh no, mom and dad, this is Korban, this is a gift dedicated to God. And here's the third time. And what, what, what happens? What is to be opened? Um, verse 35, at this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus gives instructions and nobody listens. Verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept on talking about it. One commentator concludes how emphatically the obstinacy and perversity of sinful human nature is here revealed. Yeah, um, Jesus says, don't do it, and they do it anyway. Verse 37, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. One is reminded of a passage in Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I think we would agree with the crowd. He does everything well, just not the way we thought he would do it. The crowd said, put your hand on him and heal him. And that's not what Jesus does. Then we come to chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000. Um, someone asked me this week, what are you going to preach on next week? And I said, well, there's some miracles and also the feeding of the 4,000. And the response was, didn't you already do that? Um, didn't you already talk about the feeding? 
That was the feeding of the 5,000. This is a different incident altogether. Chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. Verse 7, they had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up the seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. This is a different incident from the feeding of the 5,000. And we will see in a bit, uh, in the next passage, how Jesus, in fact, talks about that there are two different events. There are some similarities, obviously, feeding a large crowd out in the middle of nowhere, miraculously, but there are also differences. Uh, The one big difference is that this crowd had been with Jesus for three days. Uh, With the first one, it's one day, and it's sort of the end of the day, and Jesus is concerned they haven't had anything to eat. Uh, These people haven't, well, I don't know if they brought bag lunches or whatever, but it's the third day, and uh, they need something to eat. As before, Jesus has compassion on the people. And as before, the disciples have no clue as to what can or should be done. It is as though they did not remember what happened. Let me just say, on a side note, the Gospel of Mark is not chronological. So it is possible that the feeding of the 4,000 came before the feeding of the 5,000. I don't think so, but it's possible. In any case, at one of those feedings, they should have remembered the previous one to say, oh, Jesus has got this covered. He can take care of this. And they don't seem to get that at all. Unlike the first feeding, there were five loaves and two fish. This one has seven loaves. And then later on, a few small fish. They're not presented or mentioned together. It's the two separate courses of the meal that Jesus provides. The crowd is instructed to sit, and Jesus gives thanks, breaks the bread, and he gives it to the disciples, and they distribute it. Then later, the few small fish are brought. Jesus gives thanks again, distributes or gives it to the disciples, and they distribute it to the crowd. The people ate, and they were satisfied. Unlike the first feeding, where they collected 12 baskets of leftovers, this time they have seven baskets of leftovers. We'll come back to this in a bit. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. As one writer put it, just right on cue, the Pharisees show up and ask for a sign. 
as though what Jesus has been doing all along was not in fact a sign in itself. What kind of sign do they want? You may have noticed that Jesus once again sighs. Um, He sighed deeply in his spirit, the ESV tells us. And I would say this is different than the healing of the deaf mute men. Um, Jesus has filled the land with infallible proofs of who he is. And they want a sign. They want a sign. Hasn't what he done enough? No. They want to call the shots. They want to determine what the sign is. Think about it. If you were to say, I want a sign, aren't you in fact putting yourself in the position to be calling the shots? To say, I will determine whether or not you have fulfilled the sign. I hesitate to mention this. It's not in my notes, but I can't help but think there was a Steve Martin movie years ago where he, um, his wife has died and he wants to remarry. And so he goes in the house and stands in front of her. There's a big portrait. And he says, is it okay with you if I marry this other woman? Can you give me a sign? And her, her portrait starts spinning around. There's wind that comes in. There's trash blowing around him. And he hears this, no, no. And he stands there and he says, just a sign. Just give me a sign. In other words, what she was doing wasn't sufficient for him. And it's the same with the Pharisees. We just want a sign. Uh, Just fed 4,000 people. Healed a deaf mute man. Cast out a demon from a little girl. They want to call the shots. By the way, if someone says to you, you know what? If God did fill in the blank, then I would believe in him. Our answer to that is, no, you would not. No, you would not. You would come up with another explanation for how that happened. You've put yourself in a position to make the final judgment. It is fascinating that the request of a sign was a sign in itself. That this generation, in fact, the mainstream of Jewish society, okay, were determined not to hear what he had to say. They want to set the parameters. They want to hold up the hoop for him to jump through. They want to determine whether or not what he's saying is true. Jesus is giving loving signs of the kingdom. Not good enough. Not good enough. We want a sign. The fact is, their view of the kingdom was radically different than his. And this is what we see in the next passage in verses 14 through 21. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full, basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? 
It's an interesting discussion in that when Jesus asked them, do you still not understand? We, these hundreds, thousands of years later, we might still respond, we still don't understand. It's not so much about understanding, but rather a misunderstanding. It starts out with the disciples having forgotten to pack a lunch. We don't know what happened to the seven basketfuls. Uh, I keep saying baskets full, but maybe it's already gone. They've given it away or they've eaten it. All they're left with is one loaf. Um, And Jesus then says, listen, guys, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they're thinking, oh, yeast, bread, we only have one loaf. He's like indirectly getting on our case for not bringing any bread. Um, Yeast is used in making bread. And so when Jesus brings up yeast and they only have one loaf, they connect the dots. But that wasn't the point at all. The yeast of the Pharisees and those of Herod, the Herodians, referred to their faulty teaching which had contaminated the thinking of people. The yeast of the Pharisees was traditionalism. They followed the tradition of the elders. We read this in Mark chapter 7, that they don't eat unless they have washed their hands ceremonially. And Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. That's their yeast. And it's con- the way yeast works its way through the dough, that's what had happened They had placed or they had replaced God's view of his kingdom with a view of their own, which would be all about them, about the Jews, in which they could observe the law with real strictness. It's not for the benefit of all society, of all Jewish society even, certainly not for the benefit of the world. It's for us. The kingdom is about us. On the other hand, the yeast of the Herodians was secularism. The Herod family, they wanted, in fact, for their dynasty to continue. They wanted the royal family to be the true kings of Israel. So here comes Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven is here. And they're like, yes, and we are kings and our children, our grandchildren, our great grand, they're going to be kings too. That's what the kingdom is about. And it wasn't at all. Jesus' kingdom vision was very different. And his feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000 are signs of what the kingdom is about. But the disciples don't get it. And Jesus quotes from the book of Jeremiah, Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have ears but do not see, who have ears, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. To which Jesus adds, Don't you remember? He's referring to the two feedings. And so he asked him, okay, when I fed 5,000, how much did we have left over? 12, 12 baskets. When I fed 4,000, how many? Seven. And yet they still did not understand. Unless we think this comes out of nowhere or it's a bit harsh, um, think through this passage. He says to them, are your hearts hardened? Do you not see or understand? Do you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Afterwards, Jesus sent the disciples off in a boat, and then he dismissed the crowd, and he went up to the mountainside to pray. And it was nighttime, and the disciples were having a hard time because the wind was against them. And then Jesus comes out walking on the water. Um, They thought he was a ghost. 
We read, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What is there about the feeding of the 5,000 and the loaves and their hearts being hardened? It doesn't seem, doesn't seem to connect. The fact is they failed to recognize who Jesus was. And in this sense, they're not that different from the Pharisees and the Herodians. They have a different vision of the kingdom altogether, and they fail to recognize Jesus' unique character. They fail to recognize his work in the context of the Old Testament. They had their own narrative set up in their minds, and Jesus didn't fit that narrative. They should have said, wait a minute, boys, we were in the wilderness, A bunch of people, no food, and food is miraculously provided. That's almost like Moses in the wilderness with the children of Israel. They don't get it. It didn't ring any bells for them. They just didn't get it. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come. The Pharisees don't get it. The Herodians don't get it because they have their own story. The disciples don't get it because they have their own story as well. Let's wrap this up. I'm struck by the story of the Syrophoenician woman, perhaps the more difficult part of this lesson today. Um, The Pharisees don't get it right. The Herodians don't get it right. The disciples don't get it right. She got it right. She recognized divine grace. She didn't contest her status as a dog. Okay, maybe it's a pet, but still a dog. She did not contest that. Jesus told a parable, which was a combination of challenge and offer, and she got it. She absolutely got it. She said, I'm not a Jew. I get that. I don't deserve to ask. I don't deserve for you to do anything for me. But I'm asking. And she wouldn't let go. And Jesus said, for that, for that, you will get what you want. But let's talk about the main problem in this passage. And we'll see it next week as well, the Lord willing. Simply put, it is the way Jesus did things isn't the way that they thought he should do things. And I would argue that in many ways, we would agree with the disciples that yeah, um, Jesus, you know, you need, you need some sensitivity training here. You know, you, you need to do this the right way. Um, if somebody came to me and said, listen, my little daughter is possessed by a demon. Cast out the demon. You know, our first thought is not, hey, let me push back on this lady. Let me, let me, tell her a parable in which she ends up being a dog. Um, We wouldn't do that, would we? It's like, does Jesus know what he's doing? We certainly wouldn't use what can be perceived as racist language. I would say in today's world, hate speech. We wouldn't do it that way. And if somebody came and said, listen, I want to be healed, um, we would be with the crowd. 
Jesus, put your hand on this guy and heal him. Not stick your fingers in his ears, then take some spit out of your mouth and put it on his tongue. Yet, we just wouldn't do it that way. And then something perhaps as petty as, okay, Jesus, why did you do the bread first? You prayed and gave thanks and, and then distributed it through the disciples. And then you did the fish and prayed again. I mean, couldn't you just like do one prayer and like give thanks for everything at once? Jesus was doing things in a way that we would not. I think we might say we have a better vision of what the kingdom of God should look like. And we would be wrong. Getting it wrong is going to be a continuing theme. And just to give you sort of a preview next week, next week Jesus will heal a blind man in a very, very different way. Um, in two stages. Not seen that before. Um, and then Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give all these answers. And he said, who do you say I am? And then Peter comes out with this magnificent confession. You are the Christ. It's great. You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. He's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Okay, that's not the way the story goes. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You see, we all, I think, have visions of how the kingdom of God is supposed to look. And oftentimes we are wrong. And when we see the life of Jesus and his healings and the things that he does, yeah, it's great that he did these things. It's great that he cast the demon out of the little girl and, and healed this deaf and mute man, um, fed the 4,000. That's great. But why do it that way? seems very inefficient and unnecessarily provocative. Beware of the yeast. I don't bake, but I've been told that when you get the dough together and you put the yeast, you let it set for a while and it spreads and suddenly the dough begins to rise. The thinking that comes into our lives, yeah, this is, God, this is how you're supposed to do things. And then if we're not careful, we're like the Pharisees, Give me a sign. Prove to me that you love me. We don't call the shots. We're not God. If we're not careful, we will be like the disciples, or if worse, even worse, like the Pharisees, in which we want God to be at our beck and call. And we want him to do things in the way we want them to be done. And that's not what Jesus does. That's not what he does. He is the Lord God Almighty. He will do things in the right way. There's that wonderful beginning to Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he wants. Jesus is the Son of God, and he does things the way he wants. We may, we may struggle, we may raise our eyebrows a bit and like, oh, I didn't see that coming. I don't think I would have done it that way. But hasn't that happened in our lives? 
May God give us the grace to trust him that he knows, in fact, what he's doing. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for what Calvin called the vehemence of your love, how Jesus shared in miseries and even to this day continues to share in our sorrows. But being stubborn and thinking we know better, we imagine that you should do things differently than you have done them in our lives. The reality, we should say with the crowd, he does all things well. Perhaps not in the way we expect, but you do all things well. Help us to trust you. Give us the grace to humble ourselves and to know that you know what is best. We thank you for the Gospel of Mark, this account of how Jesus lived among us. How he cast out demons and healed those who were deaf and mute. How he fed those who were hungry. Just in unexpected ways. Open our hearts, please, to receive this truth. I thank you for gathering us here on the first day of a new week. And now as we leave this place and go out into the world, may we have a sense of your presence to know that you are with us every step of the way. And even when circumstances shout to us that you have abandoned us, you have not. You're right there with us. By your grace, may we trust you. Again, I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.